This is the uh, first episode of what I'm tentatively calling the Mana Brain Podcast. I am Ami. I am joined today by Ivan and Roman. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Ivan, you go first. Okay. Hello, my name's Ivan Espinosa. I've played Magic for about seven years now and uh, I just really enjoy the game I play. I try to play as competitively as possible, and I've been traveling to, like, the Midwest, NRG circuit, and, I plan some SCGs this year, so, I'm actually going to SCG Philly this weekend. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. And I am Roman. I've been playing Magic for about 10 years now. Um, I also play a more competitive level. I'm more of a limited aficionado now than anything else but, I also play modern, constructed formats. So, hopefully also going to SCG Philly this week. We'll see. But, I'm going to a bunch of the SCG con events this year as well. And what are uh, the best finishes that you two have had? For me, I guess it would be, whatever Vegas was, I think it was November. MTG Vegas. I was fortunate enough to top 8 that one, lost immediately in top 8. Um, and then, recently, at the beginning of January, I won the NRG Championship, in Chicago, so, that was pretty lucky, pretty fun. As far as that, I've been to a couple pro tours, and queued for the upcoming Cormigas War set championship, so, I've been having a pretty good little run here. So, hopefully I can keep it up in Philly. Then for me, I also top-8ed MTG LAS Vegas, but Ivan was in Modern, I was in Limited, and I also lost in top-8 very quickly. Um, I've won an SCG Regional Championship which was Modern a few years ago. I've had like various SCG, like, okay, day 2 finishes but, um, yeah, Vegas was definitely the high point of my Magic career right now I guess. Alright, and I am your host, Ami. I have a total of zero top eights in any GP and I've never been to the Pro Tour, so I can tell you that my uh, opinion's gonna really count as much as these guys. Uh, or me. Okay, so uh, I've curated a list of cards that I thought were interesting to, that were either powerful or just otherwise interesting to talk about for whatever reason. Sounds good. Alright, so starting off, uh, just getting the elephant in the room out of the way, we have all of the new legendary lands, which are uh, Aganjo, Odawara, Takanuma, Sokenzan, and Beseju. These are all monocolor legendary lands that enter untapped and produce one color of whatever color they are. And they all have a channel ability, which means that you discard, you pay a certain amount of mana, discard them, and the cost is reduced by uh, how many legendary creatures you control, and then they produce some effects. So uh, the first one that has gotten the most, probably the most hyped card in the set is Beseju Who Endures which is a legendary land tap add green. It has channel one and green, discard it. Destroy target artifact, enchantment, or non-basic land an opponent controls. That player may search their library for a land card with a basic land type. So you can search for shocks and triumphs. Put it on the battlefield, then shuffle. And this ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. What do you guys think of this one? Well, this card is just incredibly busted, right? I mean, I've heard a lot of hype about this card. Um, I think Ivan has a lot of experience playing this Renan 6 decks in modern, so I want to hear his opinion about this card and how it sides into these Yorion 4-color decks. Yeah, it's gonna be kind of interesting. I think you might have to play it as a spell. Considering, right now, the deck plays like 5 basics. And, oh, 6 basics. I don't really count it as a basic. But, the importance of having basics right now is, uh... The lowest it's ever been? Yeah, it's... Because I think, like, Path to Exile got replaced by subtle uh, by uh, Solitude, and then 
The only the only cards I can think of that actually care about basics right now are sometimes Mill will use Field of Ruin on you, and then other than that, it's basically Blood Moon. Right, actually, I think, uh, I think it's the highest it's ever been for the four-color deck, because, uh, how, you want to make sure the game goes, really long, so you want to preserve your life total, until you get to AOM Nath and are able to gain that life back. And you know, the decks are playing two to four Kotels, and enabling the Death Touch ability on Kotel is really important. Ah, so you wanna get your snow-covered basics out, so, I think, Bosseju can be run as a spell, and, I don't know how many copies it would be. I know for sure you can play one in the main. And you can probably get away with more than that, I wanna say. But I don't know what the numbers are as far as four colors specifically. But, I feel like there's going to be other decks that try to, ya know, abuse synergies with life from the loam. Ren and Six, and, ya know, maybe some, hopefully splendid reclamation strategies where we see like our, a dedicated land strategy. So can we say right off the bat, just for all of these lands in general, that I don't know if any deck could necessarily run like three or four copies, but plenty of decks, assuming they're not like super stretched thin on their basic count, can run at least one copy of them? I feel, I'm inclined to believe it's pretty free to run, one of each of the colors, once. It feels like these lands can just be played in every constructed format, right? Is there a reason not to include one of these in like pretty much? Not like. Not every deck is going to want them obviously, but thinking about standard. Pioneer. Yeah. I just feel like you would want to just play these types of cards cause, cause they're so free. It feels like... It feels like unless there's a very specific reason that your deck can't run them, like maybe the maybe the four color decks are like stretched too thin as far as uh, all of their color requirements and you still have to run some amount of basics anyway, like maybe they can't run them, but I think pretty much every other deck can run at least one of these. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, they remind me of the castles and that like, they're just, they're kind of free in that sense, right? Well, the castles are kind of like check lands in a way, like they're not exactly free, but th these are like far more free than those. Exactly. It's also interesting to note that for every one of these, so the cost reduction part of it, I don't think matters too much. The Maybe you'll have a random like Ragavan or Lyra sitting around that'll reduce the cost, but probably you'll just pay full cost for them. Yeah, I think so. Um, Roman, were you talking about Igon Joe Castle like those? In what way? Like the- In reference to the- Lands like being free. Yeah, it just seems. Why wouldn't you play at least one copy of these lands? Ya yeah, no, unless your deck has a certain cost like Ormi said. Ya yeah, no, you might not want to, but I'm thinking in terms more of pioneer and standard at least. These lands just seem so free, just to play one copy of. So, it's also interesting to note that because you discard them, they're effectively uncounterable. Right, I mean like. For standard, at least in Pioneer, the White Castle, or the White Land, is pretty good against Gold Span for example right? They won't get the treasure I think, right? Cause it's an activated ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty good application. So I was also looking at, I was wondering like what decks would use them the most, and probably Beseju is the best. It's in Tron and Amulet, just because they're decks that are already green and can tutor for lands. I was also... Interest I was wondering if it would be possible to like strip mine people by just constantly recurring Besage with Renin Six over and over. So I looked at all the decks in modern, for example, just to see how many lands you can fetch with them. And I don't think any deck you can realistically strip mine out of the game except for Belcher, which doesn't run any lands to tutor. Right. Because it says that for Boseju, you can get any land that has a basic land type. That would include the shock lands. Right. right. 
Yes, and the and triumphs. Yeah, I think at some point you're going to be strip mining your opponent, but you know there's Field of Ruin, where you can just get people on lands they're gonna have. Like you said, a lot of times they're gonna have lands to keep fetching, but I think in the long game at least, maybe in the Yorio Index, you could probably start just strip mining your opponent. I was especially curious, like, if it would be good against Tron to try doing that, and Tron, it looks like, runs between four or five basic forests, but if if they start running Beseju in that slot, then you can actually strip mine them easier. Good point. That's true. Uh, so, talking about some of the other ones besides Beseju... Oh, and by the way, Beseju is uh, outside of a few variant art mythic rares. Beseju is the most expensive card in the set right now. Yeah, it's 30-something dollars right yeah. now. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Our monocolored rare land to have the highest price tag. Like, I, you know, I think it's a very good card, but I don't think, I think it is overhyped, at least, especially at that price. Yeah, it definitely says something about, I guess, what people really care about because in paper at least, where this card is the most expensive because it's the best modern card in the set, mm -hmm. or the best pioneer card as well, it goes into all these different decks, in many different formats, so I'm not surprised it's the most expensive. Do, just uh, a quick spoiler, do we all agree that Beseju is the best card in the set? I, I mean, best card in terms of applications across all these different formats I think so. The lands are probably some of the best cards in the set for that reason. I mean it depends. I think that changes depending on whether you're talking about alchemy, or standard, or what have you. For modern per se, or all the formats. Yeah no, constructed formats that exist right now. Yeah, though Siju is probably the best card in the set. Yeah, I would say at the very least that it has the most potential where it has the potential to be the best in the set, in my opinion. You think that this card can ever get banned? Is it? Is it? Is there a chance it could be that good? Or is it just one of these cards where it's really good, but it's not that offensive worthy? I think, it's gonna depend on, ya you know, the quantities that people use. And, you know, the decks that you can build. Every time a new card comes out that's pretty good, there's somebody who's trying to break it, right? And, if there's a waiter, yeah no, break this somehow, I don't know, I don't usually like, brew or build decks really, so. I just know, but ah, uh, people always call for a ban for cards that are higher power level, even if it doesn't need to happen. I think the only way that this that this or Renin 6 could get banned is if strip mining people is actually a viable strategy, but I don't foresee that happening. Yeah, I don't foresee that either, especially, since you can fetch shop lands, and everything. It seems like they were very careful with the wording. They had modern in mind when printing this card. Alright, so let's move on to the red one, Sokinzon. So this one is 4 mana to channel it, and it creates uh, you create two 1-1 colorless spirit tokens that gain haste until end of turn. I think this is because you don't have to, because you don't have to worry as much about Blood Moon and Red Decks, it's the one that could potentially see the most play in terms of the number of copies of it that you run. And I can especially see uh, decks like Red Prowess or Burn wanting to play them. I can also see the uh, Indomitable Creativity deck wanting it as another land that can make tokens. Yeah, this card definitely seems like more of a prowess card, as a Burn aficionado. I mean, I could see getting away with playing at least one copy of this card. I mean you wanna be able to fetch, fetch four lands and turn on your Searing Blazes with your fetch lands. 
So I'm not sure how many, if you would want to play more than one copy, but, as someone looking at this card, I could see myself playing at least one copy to see just, you know, see how it goes, but obviously like the Rag of Vandex, having this card be discounted is pretty huge. Yeah, I think, if, you are, like a black red lower us deck or, you're, even a burn deck, I know burn's not necessarily my wheelhouse but, if you run a basic mountain in burn. I guess you can afford to, yeah no, play this in place of it, because, for me like basics, replacing basics with these, yeah no, starts making you more susceptible to getting blood mooned out of the game, but, yeah no, mountain. Right. I think Burn plays three mountains? Yeah, we play three, but, I can see cutting one for one of these. I don't think you want to cut all the mountains for this card. No, I don't think so. Yeah, you wanna be able to fetch with your fetch lands. Also, this card is cool because in the prowess decks, or anything that has, um, Dragon's Rage Channeler, uh, it's another card that produces delirium. Also, just as a side note, I like that it kinda does the Shark Typhoon thing where you can uh, pitch it after your opponent resolves to fairy just to kill it. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Definitely, yeah. Alright, so the black one is Takanuma. It is also 4 mana to discard, and it says, Mill 3 cards, then return a creature or planeswalker card from your graveyard to your hand. For me, this just looks like, yeah, no, another card you'd include in the black-red Loras deck. They're running Shizo and, ah, the red one. I don't know what the red one's called. Oh, I just remembered it's Shinka. But yeah, this looks like it just slots right into that strategy. You can. Mill Crocasse, you can mill. I mean the whole deck wants to be in the graveyard, pretty much. Um, returning a threat like, like Loras when it dies, without having to have something like Cull or Gon's command. Your deck incidentally has legendary creatures in the form of Loras, and Ragavan, and Crocasse. So sometimes it's discounted. And I think, I don't know if you play multiple copies. I'm trying to think of a deck that would want multiple copies of this land and not just, you know. Maybe some kind of like Esper control deck and you can buy your Planeswalkers back? Yeah, I think that would be interesting too. I think that would be awesome. Um, just getting a Teferi back I think. It reminds me of in Standard. I think it was Tomb of the Spirit Dragon. The land that, you can cast dragon spells off of. You had an activated ability, you could like sacrifice it. Uh, Haven of the Spirit Dragon, I think. Haven of the Spirit Dragon. Um, and you can return a, an Ugin Planeswalker card or Dragon card to your hand. That card was really strong. Now this. Just because it was really strong, now this. You get like a Lolth back in Standard, or, ah, uh, in Esper you get back one of the Teferis and it's probably game. Yeah, I could also see this card being pretty good with like Lier, too. Milling is pretty good with like, Lier decks. Yeah. Depending on how good the blue-black Lier decks are in standard at this point but, um, you have, like in those decks you play Hullbreaker, milling cards is good for you regardless. Definitely this card is pretty great for the black-white decks in standard like the Edgar, Edgar Lolth decks. Some of those decks also play, right of oblivion, white, black, you sack something, exile something, that card has flashback so you could mill that over potentially, um, so kinda those applications in standard and pioneer. Alright, so uh, moving on to the blue one. This one is also 4 mana, and it is discard and return target artifact, creature enchantment, or planeswalker to its owner's hand. I like this one because it's blue, ah, uh, so it's probably inherently busted. 
I'm sure there's some Urza thing you could be doing with this in modern. I don't know what it is. Or you put it in the, uh, like the Brazen Borrower slot or as an addition to Brazen Borrower in like the Rhino decks. It strikes me as a Beseju type card that you can use to just bounce away problematic uh, stacks pieces. Yeah, and you can't interact with it. This is a way to, oh, this is like a way to counteract opposing Teferis and stuff to where, if they think they're protected. Underneath the Teferi, you just, you know, you channel this and then you can counter their spell or something. Also, Chalice 2 if you're playing the Rhino decks, right? Yeah, this land is. I didn't, just so Roman, I didn't even think about like using it to loop your own stuff, but I can't think of anything that you could do that with right now, but maybe, maybe there's a way to do that. I'm sure there's something with this card. I was thinking about something with Urza. There's like something you can do with this card that makes it really good. I don't know what it is, but just talking about this card and all the applications could have in multiple formats. I think it's probably the second most powerful one out of these five. Yeah, I agree. All right, and then there is the white one, which is three mana, and it is discard to deal four, to, four damage to target attacking or blocking creature. Yeah, this one is solid. Yeah. You know, I would play it in any dedicated blue-white control strategy, I'd probably play it in a four-color deck, because it's a pseudo-removal spell you can get with Ren and Six. And you know, it answers Dragon Rage Channeler, it can't be countered against. Like, Grix ISS. Same thing with Ragavan. Three mana is, a decent cost, to be honest. You have like Ragavan. Yeah, so the cost will be reduced, but, you know, you can't really, it's a spell land. And, you know, have modal cards like is very very, I think I'd play it, um, I'd play multiple of these for sure. Even in like four color? I think you'd play, like two. I think white is, the worst, mono-colored land, in that deck, even behind mountain, because mountain gets bolt, rag of an, half of ren and six, half of expressive, whereas the plains is just like, there for blood moon. So, I might be, again, I'll have to run it as a spell, and lean more into the land type strategy, but, I don't really mind that, because you can hold these. Alright, so, how would we rank these in order? Like, I think, is Besage the top of the pile? Yeah. Yeah. That, and then, I'm not sure where to place the other ones. I'm inclined to want Takanuma in second place, just because it's a card that gets another relevant card back. Oh yeah, I'm inclined to have Tokanuma at the very bottom. I think a Ganjo, like, I think that Ganjo is probably either the worst or the second worst effect, but the but it's cheaper than the other ones except Beseju, so that bumps it up. I think my, I think my order would be Beseju, then Takanuma, then probably Odawara, then a Ganjo, and then Sokanzon. I think mine would be Baoseju, Odawera, uh, I think it's like a tie for me between Igonjo and Sokenzon, Tokanuma probably last, I don't know, I feel like Sokenzon might have a lot of applications in these prowess decks that could be pretty powerful, Tokanuma feels like the slowest out of all of these if that makes sense, I don't know, I definitely think there's a big gap between the white, red, and black ones compared to blue and green. I think I Dubo Seiju or Darwara I Gonjo and then yeah and then Sakenzon and then Tokanuma like pretty clearly there. I think Sakenzon has more potential than I Gonjo just for right now as a baseline of getting to deal four damage to a creature. Um yeah I would go with that order. Are right, any more thoughts on these before we move on? 
I think so Kenzon can be busted in, like, transmogrify type. Like the creativity deck? Yeah, exactly. Might open up the mana base for that deck a lot more or make it more consistent to where you, you know, you can win easier through Blood Moon. That is one of the ones that can actually play four copies of this, um, and be okay with it. All right, so let's move on to the March of Cycle. So the first one we're going to start with is March of Otherworldly Light. So these are all, uh, they are all spells that have X and then a single color mana. And they all have, they're all instants and they all have as an additional cost to cast a spell, you may exile any number of whatever color this spell is, cards from your hand. The spell costs two less to cast for each card exiled this way. So in the case of March of Otherworldly Light, it's as an additional cost to cast a spell, you may exile any number of white cards from your hand. This will cost two less to cast for each card exiled this way. And then it says exile target artifact, creature, or enchantment with mana value X or less. So the card that everyone is immediately comparing this to is, of course, Prismatic Ending. But I do think there are a number of important differences between the two, namely that it's an instant. It also doesn't hit Planeswalkers like Prismatic does. And at the lowest part of the curve, it requires more mana paid than Prismatic does, although you can pitch stuff to it. So it's kind of like solitude in a way, sort of. I'm hard pressed to believe that, you know, that this card is not gonna see play in blue, white, or four color strategies. I just think that it'll be in low numbers because of how good prismatic ending is. And the instant speed isn't too relevant unless you're getting locked underneath a rag somehow, and you only have prismatics. Hitting a planeswalker is huge for prismatic compared to this. Um, I mean, I don't know, Prismatic's just so good. It hits everything. Gets you out of trouble in the four-color deck, you can hit it for five. But this has, you know, the application where, if you have enough mana, you can hit Khan later on against Tron. I guess it doesn't hit Khan. Nah, yeah, I take all that back. Yeah, I don't know, I think this could be a sideboard card, or like a one-of-in-the-main, type deal. Yeah, I think you're probably not saying that this is going to replace Prismatic Ending, because, you know, watching your matches Ivan, in the mirror especially, taking out Renan 6 seems pretty important, or a Teferi or something, with Ending, I think March is cool because it can take out Dash Ragavan, um, but, like Ivan said, I don't think you're playing this card in multiple copies, I could see this as a one of, or two of maybe, I don't know, I'm not as familiar with the blue-white four-color decks but it doesn't seem like you'd want to replace your endings with this card. So I am significantly higher on this card than other people are, I don't think it's necessarily better than Prismatic, and it's definitely not as good when you're facing decks like Death Shadow where they have lots of cheap stuff that you want to hit, but I found that Prismatic ending, once you start paying more than two mana for it, it really starts to go down in my eyes. Like, I think Renin 6 and Teferi are obviously important hits just because they're so important in the matchup, or like Teferi is just an effect you need to clear out of the board. But the instant speed is very relevant, and it should also be noted that March can hit Urza's Saga and Artifact Lands. Yeah, that's true too. Oh, that's a good application. Yeah, it's one mana to exile Urza's Saga. And so specifically, I play the Jeskai Lotus Field deck in Modern, and that deck and Wilderness Reclamation decks are much more interested in having instant speed answers to stuff. Does this, does this make a liquid metal coating, slash, liquid metal talk deck, a lot better? You know, I didn't even think of that, but yes, it does. Yeah, I was just thinking about how I could turn, things into artifacts. Yeah, that might be an interesting, little brew. This also hits, uh, Ink Moth Nexus, by the way. Yeah, I was like, it hits all the creature lands. Yeah, this is pretty cool. I'm interested to see what, you know, a liquid metal coating deck looks like with this. 
because, I feel like, every time, you know, a new set comes out, especially now that there's, you know, we get eight of those effects. Because of Modern Horizons 2 printing liquid metal talk, plus all the things that destroy. That might be interesting. All right, so let's move on to the red one. And from here on out, I think the cycle significantly drops in power level. Exile the top X cards of your library. You may play up to two of those cards until the end of your next turn. So this is kind of like a hybrid between Light Up the Stage and Commune with Lava, if you guys remember that card. Yeah, this. This feels like more of a standard card in terms of power level to me in terms of maybe modern. I guess I'm not as familiar with what kind of deck would play this card. I don't know. Would this card be played in like Storm or something? Yeah, I was wondering, like, the low to the ground prowess and burn type decks that would play Light Up the Stage would play, I think, just light up the stage more than this card and then if there's ever a mono red storm deck that exists maybe that would play this card i don't think you can ever afford to pitch more than one card to it though ah yeah the art is cool on this card but also maybe like that like a mono red prison strategy with like chalice moon this could be good in that running in snaring bridge as well you can do it for like at the end of their turn and it's a way to draw cards without keeping cards in your hand I you can kind of just like, get rid of cards in a pinch if you need your ensnaring bridge to, you know, work immediately. That kind of deal. It might have some application there. Yeah, I agree with you Roman, it's more of a standard card. It's not like busted, so. How much mana you can pay, if the red counted towards it, I think it would be pushed a little bit more, but yeah. Alright, let's move on to the other ones. Spoiler alert, I think these other three are absolute trash, but we'll go through them. March of Burging Life is X and green, instant, has the same cost reduction clause, and it says choose target creature with mana value less than X. Important to note that's less than X, not less than or equal to. Search your library for a creature card with the same name as that creature, put it onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle. So for two mana or pitching a card, you can get a one drop and scale it up from there. And it has to be the same name as a creature that's already in play, so most likely, unless you're playing a mirror match, your opponent's probably not going to have any creatures that you also have. It also targets, meaning they can kill your creature that you're targeting in response to blanket. Wait, for two mana also? Um, you mean if X is two because it says... If the, if the total amount of mana you're paying is two. So if X is one. But it says mana value less than X. Yeah. So you actually can't do that right? Oh yeah, sorry, so it costs three, so to get a one drop. Yeah, three mana. Even worse than I read. I mean, is there something to do with this card in? What were those creature decks in modern? The, um, the vizier types. But those decks don't even exist anymore. The vizier. Combo type decks. Yeah, but the problem is you don't need multiple copies of that. Right, exactly. Not only is this card bad on rate, even if you wanted to pay the rate, I can't think of anything you could do with it. Uh, I can. You can get Bio-Visionary, and try to win the game that way. So if you play and resolve a Bio-Visionary and they don't kill it ever, you can pay 5 mana and get another Bio-Visionary. Yeah. Alright, I think we broke it. Yeah, me too. Moving on. Moving on. March of Wretched Sorrow is X in black with the same cost reduction clause, and it says it deals X damage to target creature or planeswalker, and you gain X life. Again, probably like, another standard card right. Unlike the green one it at least does something, like meaningfully impact the board. Can get your life total up too if you're racing. I've just seen so many cards over the years with this same effect and I don't think any of them have ever been good. Yeah, the last one was Aeroboss Intervention, right? 
Did that one even see any play? It saw standard play. I don't think it sees any pioneer play, but that one's more relevant because it has a graveyard hate option. Yeah, I think this one's not. Intervention is probably the better pioneer card, but I don't think that card even sees play so I don't know if this one will even see play. Alright, moving on to the blue one, March of Swirling Mist. Same cost, same cost reduction, up to X target creatures phase out. So it's like the worst modal fog slash protect your own creature from a removal spell. Yeah, I don't know. Seems just like a standard card to protect you from rats or something. If you're a blue aggro deck. This is interesting, it's like an offensive defensive card. I think it has potential as a one of in, have a pseudo cryptic. Maybe in like a murphic strategy. I guess all their creatures are unblockable. I don't know. There's probably some option that run it as a sideboard slot in the creature mirror match or something. Because the only things I can think of to use this for are you pay a ton of mana and fog the opponent's team or save your guys from removal or wrath. Yeah. yeah. And in either case, you're paying so much just to do that. Yeah. This card does not seem good. Who knows? I'm trying to figure out what it could be used in. Yeah. It's not great. Alright, moving on. So we have the Dragon Cycle. This is kind of a return of the original Champions of Kamigawa Dragon Cycle, except these are significantly better, although I still don't think any of them are good. They have a variety of costs ranging from 4 to 6 mana, and they're all big dragon creatures that have between 4 and 6 power and toughness. They all have flying, and then a second keyword, the white one has vigilance, the blue one has ward 3, the black one has menace, the red has trample, and the green one has death touch. And then every one of them has a death trigger where you can choose between one of two modes. The white one has, look at the top 7 cards of your library, put any number of non-land permanents with total value 4 or less onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom at random, or put 2 plus 1 plus 1 counters on each of your creatures and vehicles. The blue one has, bounce any number of non-land permanents with total value 6 or less, or mill 6, then return up to 2 instance resources from your graveyard to your hand. The black one has, each opponent discards 2 cards and loses 2, or put target non-dragon creature from a graveyard onto the battlefield and you lose 2 life. The red one has exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your next turn. You may play them or creature or um, create three treasures. And the green one has search your library for up to three lands and put them into your hand or create an XX token equal to your land count. Obviously, these are big, powerful creatures in standard, presumably, but I don't think they can see play outside of that. Yeah, I think so too. But what is it at sushi? The red one, in my mind, is the best one. Is that just because it costs the least? It costs and, you know, it has evasion. It kind of replaces itself. Or it ramps you to other things. The treasures are relevant in a lot of black-red strategies. I feel like recently they've been pushing a lot of four-cost dragons, what is it like, mana hellkite. And then like, moon veil regent. All these four-cost dragons with flying, and, you know, reasonable stats. Even like, leline tyrant. I thought that card would be a lot better, as well. Maybe I just have a soft spot for 4 mana 4-4 four, four dragons. But, I don't know. It seems very good to me. Because you can cast them so early. Yeah. As far as like standard applications go, it's probably best in standard because it's the best 4 mana 4-4 four, four dragon in the format. Is it even better than Moonvale Regent? Um, maybe not. Actually, I guess Moonvale Regent doesn't see any play. Moon Veil is not as intensive as a mana cost so maybe Atsushi is just worse than Moon Veil, but the rest of the cycle just don't really seem that good.
Like Kira, the green one is. I feel like you're just Ren and Seven. In that slot. Already. They kind of do similar things and Ren is probably just better. And Junji I think might be okay too. In like sack decks. But I don't know. I guess there's not a lot of. I guess white black sack decks right now. And I guess the creature you'd get back would be Edgar or something. Kiri seems worse than Imo Rith. And then. Yeah the white one. Just seems pretty cost intensive for it to be really good in any white type deck. So. The black one, it's actually pretty good in standard. Like a blue-black control strategy. Oh you think so? What? When they discard cards? Well, you can play a game plan of you destroy that and, then eventually just play this dragon, they have to kill it, or hopefully then. It doesn't have life link or anything but it does have double evasion. Return a card. Seems like a great card in the mirror if you can resolve it. Also, you can do stuff like cast consider, bin your Hullbreaker Horrors, and then, get back Hullbreaker Horror with this card. That could be something, I guess. Also, if you have a clone, you can clone Junji and sack it to the Legend Rule, and then bring it back, and then just kill yourself by looping it. That's true. You just kill yourself. Or, you could have a couple Prosperous Innkeepers, and keep it going. I guess. Oh, the white dragon. I know the last couple standard challenges have been won by this green-white ramp deck. So I think that card might be pretty okay. For the first trigger, I know stuff like Yashan, where they play um, festival crash or storm the festival. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the best applications for these cards. I'm kind of surprised these cards aren't as powerful or as pushed as maybe they could be. They are significantly better than the original dragons, which all cost 6 and all only had one death trigger and only had flying. Yeah, um, I just feel these cards are probably standard cards and I don't really see them playing huge roles because there's cards that are good enough right now that replace them. But maybe at rotation or whatever these cards can be pretty powerful. Alright, well, we actually talked about these a lot longer than I thought we would, so let's move on. Sounds good. So next up is Lion Sash, and this is our first card of the Reconfigure cards, which are basically equipments that are also creatures. So Lion Sash is a 1 white artifact creature equipment cat, 1-1, one, one, and has white exile target card from a graveyard. If it was a permanent, put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on Lion Sash. Equipped creature gets plus 1 plus 1 for each counter on it. And then Reconfigure 2, which is basically equip, but you can also unattach it from creatures. So obviously the card that this compares most to is Scavenging Ooze, so it's a Scooze that's in white and that you can also fetch with Stoneforge Mystic. Okay, it seems pretty good in like, Pioneer, like getting, or I guess in Lurus decks in any format this card can be decent. Um, lots of standard applications. I don't know, I'm kind of curious to see if this card will play a role in any decks, in Pioneer and Modern. In Pioneer, this card can slip into the blue-white artifact deck. The uh, the blue-white Ensal artifact decks. For sure. Cause you have like the two mana 1-1 one, one that finds artifacts in the top four cards of your deck. I forget what the card's called. Ingenious Smith? Yeah. That's from Horizons, right? It's something Smith, right? That's from AFR. AFR we could find this card, and do stuff with it. I don't know. I'm curious if this card is more of a sideboard card, or how main deck able this card is in Pioneer and Modern. Outside of decks it has a lot of synergy with. I feel like this sees Modern and Legacy play. Cause basically at its lowest point it's just scavenging news, right? But it's scavenging news that's also, you know, tutorable with Stoneforge or Karn the Great Creator and also can attach to other creatures you control to pump them. Yeah, it's um. It doesn't gain life, but it grows faster than a scavenging ooze would. 
He can eat lands to grow as well. Yeah, exactly. You know there's a ton of fetch lands in Modern and Legacy sitting in the graveyard. As far as, your Eon taxes this kind of just slots right in. I don't know what you would cut. I've heard even though it's 80 cards that the deck lists are pretty tight. But, just having enough threats that you can get off stone forges has gotta be huge. Yeah. Yeah, this card seems very good in those strategies. I feel like a lot of times when I've seen scavenging ooze in play, it can just get outclassed by other creatures, because there's just not enough creatures in the graveyard to exile to it, but with this card, A, it can get permanence, and B, with the reconfigure, you can slap this on whatever you want and just, have a huge threat that is hard to deal with, whereas scavenging ooze could get outclassed in the past, where now, you're combining the ooze on top of some other creature, so maybe there's more room to break through in board stalls and stuff with this card. Yeah, and if you're, the reconfigure mechanic is pretty good if you're, you know, becoming the, art bestow type deal, where you can protect it. If you're expecting your opponent to cast a wrath spell, cause it just becomes unattached from something it becomes a creature again. Yeah. I think it's interesting that all of these reconfigure creatures, although they don't work with Fervent Champion, because that one specifically reduces the cost of equip, they do work with Pure Steel Paladin and Sigarda's Aid. So moving on, and specifically talking about Modern Hammer Time, we've got the Reality Chip, which is another reconfigure creature. It is a 1 and a blue for Legendary Artifact Creature Equipment Jellyfish, 0-4. You may look at the top card of your library anytime. As long as the Reality Chip is attached to a creature, you may play lands and cast spells from the top of your library, and it has Reconfigure 2 and a blue. Uh, I mean, would like Urza's decks want this in, modern, or what's the one, Lantern? When I first saw this card, the first thing I immediately thought of was Hammer Time, because it's a piece you can fetch with Stoneforge, and then if you have Pure Steel or Sigarda's Aid, you can play it for 2 mana and then immediately attach it to something, and you have Future Sight for 2 mana. Yeah, it's pretty busted in that strategy. Like, I think it's unplayable outside of Hammer Time, but I think it could be good there. Yeah, having blue though is, kind of interesting. The mana base is, pretty solid for Hammer Time right now. Even with spring leaf drums, you're running four colorless lands. Sorry, seven colorless lands in Urza's Saga and Ink Moth. Sometimes the mana base can get a little bit shaky between having all those cards cast pure steel and having to cast Luris sometimes. In addition to that, they're playing Fort Caesars now so they have black. I do remember there was a time not that long ago where the Hammer Time decks were splashing blue for Monoleek and Thieving Skydiver. Yeah, I think it also had Invisible Stalker too. Or is that a different deck? I'm not sure, I just remember Leak and Skydiver. That's good tech. Also, I gotta say that Equipment Jellyfish is a type that I never would have guessed. Yeah, I didn't expect to see a jellyfish in this set. I think that's cool, but Equipment Jellyfish exceeded my expectations for sure. So much of this set, just as a side note, I think the art in this set in particular is, for me, it's the best art I've ever seen in a Magic set. There are so many pieces that are just incredible. Yeah, I'm looking at this reality chip and it's just, it's just incredible. Like even at the top of the, the building, like the structure that is the jellyfish. They have like, a crescent that looks like a moon, but also like, a Portuguese man of war. Like the artistry, and the amount of detail they put into this is, absurd. Yeah, I like the detail on this card, how the background is sort of, out of focus, shows how tiny it is. Yeah, it's incredible. Every time I look at, you know, any magic card, including from this set, it's incredible to me.
I feel like with this set too, because players have disdain for the original Kamigawa block, they wanted to go so above and beyond for this set. I think this set has really, a lot of great flavor, a lot of the art is really beautiful, I think there's a lot they wanted to excite players with in this return to Kamigawa. Like, the Japanese ukiyo lands are going to be sought after forever. Definitely. Right, so moving on, there's Cloudsteel Kirin, which is a 2 and a white for an artifact creature equipment. Kirin is a 3-2 flyer and has equipped creature, has flying, and you can't lose the game and your opponents can't win the game. Reconfigure 5. So it is a equipment platinum angel. And again, I have to say, if this is going to see play anywhere, it's going to be hammer time. I don't know if that's good enough. I went through basically every deck in Modern and I tried to see, is there any deck that doesn't have an out to this? And I didn't find a single deck that cannot answer this card. So probably not, but maybe. Yeah, Boggles can't deal with this card. At least I think they can't. Don't they have stuff to deal with? Boggles. In the main. They don't play seal, right? In the main they don't play anything I don't think, like not even Prismatic or Path. I don't have high hopes for Cloudsteel Kirin. I just thought it was interesting and that it was, again, it's another thing you can put into Hammer Time if for some reason that will help you win the game. Yeah, I'm going to hate playing against this card in Limited for sure. Imagine playing with this. Your opponent is out of removal spells. They just can't deal with it. Yeah, this is super annoying in Limited, and it gives flying, what? But I think it's going to be annoying seeing people try and equip these. To hexproof creatures, which means you have to have, you know, your prismatic endings. The thing is, you can answer it by either killing the creature or the equipment. Yeah, which is nice. There's also a lot more people playing Baosaiju in the format with this, right? It's sort of, who cares, you know? Yeah, it's all just Baosaiju fodder at this point. Alright, so moving on to Ogre Head Helm, which I'm not going to lie, I included this before I realized that Fervent Champion doesn't work with it. But it's a uh, 1 red 2-2 two -two artifact creature equipment Ogre. Equipped creature gets plus 2 plus 2. Whenever Ogre Head Helm or Equipped Creature deals combat damage to a player, you may sacrifice it. If you do, discard your hand and draw three cards, and it has Reconfigure 3. I don't think this card is good, like, at all, but it does have the words draw three cards on it, so maybe it could see play somehow. I think more so in Limited this card's pretty cool outside of that. I'm kind of curious if Mono Red, there are some cards in this set that might make a Mono Red resurgence in Standard, and maybe this card plays a role. I don't even know. Yeah, I can't really say either, it would have to be a deck, probably like, Break It, Madness, or some kind of discard synergies. Alright, let's move on to Tezzeret, Betrayer of Flesh. This is a 2 blue blue Legendary Planeswalker Tezzeret, it has 4 loyalty. It says, the first activated ability of an artifact you activate each turn costs 2 less to activate. It has plus 1, draw 2 cards, then discard 2 cards unless you discard an artifact. Minus two, target artifact becomes an artifact creature. If it isn't a vehicle, it has base power and toughness 4-4. Four, four. And minus six, you get an emblem with whenever an artifact you control becomes tapped, draw a card. I think right off the bat, the card that is most comparable to this is Tezzeret Agent of Bolas, which really has not been a good enough card in really anywhere for a while, even though plenty of players love to try to build Tezzerator. But this does have a few interesting differences. The activation uh, reduction effect. So I went through and tried to find every single artifact with a reduced cost to see what's useful, and really the only ones that are worthwhile are the swords, like Sword of Fire and Ice. The plus one, you see fewer cards than Agent of Bolas, but you get to draw two instead of one and keep any of them. But you're effectively gaining more cards you could work with, and you can get two potentially relevant cards, whereas Agent of Bolas can only get one card and specifically has to be an artifact. And then the minus two is kind of interesting in that it doesn't change stats for vehicles, 
It doesn't change their base power and toughness. So for stuff like the one mana consulate dreadnought, which is a 7-Eleven, you could animate that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It permanently becomes a creature, right? So even if Tezzeret leaves, it's still around as a big creature. I think it's probably better than Agent of Bolas, even the emblem. I mean, they don't have immediate kill potential, but like, it's pretty good. Like how are you gonna outvalue that ever? But I think that the draw two, then discard two cards, is better, it's even better in a dedicated artifact strategy because you can find, like, replacement Tezzerets, you can find your Ensols in Pioneer. You get to find removal spells, counter spells, whatever you need. Being able to have a selection of. Being able to find any card is better than looking a little deeper into your deck and only being able to find an artifact card. Like you can with the plus with this. I also think it's quite an interesting card, and I do think it is better than Agent of Bolas, including because it's only one color and not two. I think the biggest knock against it is it costs the same as Urza. This is true, for me, this doesn't seem like a modern card, as much as a pioneer card or a standard card. That kind of thing. I think on power level, it's strong enough to see modern play. It's just a matter of, is it good enough? Is there a shell for it? And does that shell want it more than Urza or in addition to Urza? Yeah, I think dedicated artifact strategies typically want Urza, just because of, you know, the incredible mana advantage it gains, and it's a two for one, and, you know, it's the whole package. But, for the shell you're talking about, is one with consulate dreadnought, and cheesy things like that, then maybe it's, maybe it'll find a home. Alright, then we move on. Yes. So next up is Reality Heist. This is a 5 blue blue instant. It has affinity for artifacts and it has look at the top 7 cards of your library. You may reveal up to 2 artifact cards from among them and put them into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library and in a random order. So it's artifact dig through time. This card seems pretty. Pretty good, right? Yeah, this card's, this card's very good. Let's you turn the 8 cast deck into 12 cast now. Yeah, you don't really, like this is just. I don't know, this seems very very good, the consistency this is gonna give to have, in modern. It gets all your affinity guys for free, it being instant is kinda crazy too. I'm not even sure that it necessarily sees play in traditional affinity decks, but I think that Lantern and Urza decks really love this card. Oh, that's true. I can see Lantern playing this, really easily. Even over Whirr. As a person who's played a lot of Lantern, I can say that I would want this over Whirr. I think the biggest problem with Whirr is the triple blue. Yeah, you kinda have to walk your mana base around it, this being double blue is nice. It's just great as far as like any sort of artifact combo where it can find both pieces of your Thopter Sword combo or find like Lantern and a Milrock or a Bridge plus something else relevant. Yeah, two mana dig through time. Seems pretty busted. Yeah, getting Thopter Sword off of this is pretty cool. Or, when you have an Urza in play. Because I've played against decks with Urza, Thopter Sword, when they have an Urza. I'm just like, waiting for Thopter's sword to die. And they don't have it. This, they just have it, that's definitely, a little scary. But I think it's, cool to add more things to those cards, because we have things like Stony Silence. Pithing Needle can deal with it. It just means you need to have more respect for this deck now. So moving on, there is Moonsnare Prototype, which is a single blue and an artifact with tap and tap an untapped artifact or creature you control to add a colorless mana, and it has channel, the owner of target non-land permanent, puts it on the bottom of, or uh, top or bottom of their library. So it's like a springleaf drum that is worse in terms of that it costs colored mana to play and doesn't produce colored mana, but it's better in that you can tap other artifacts to produce mana and not necessarily creatures and has a relevant removal mode. 
I mean, I just find this in, a, pioneer. This seems like it would replace spring leaf drum or work in combination with spring leaf drum because, you can tap your spring leaf drum to add mana. So maybe, it makes the power level of that deck, higher, because you can get mana advantage from your artifacts. I don't know, I like it a lot. I don't think it'll replace spring leaf drum in things like hammer time, or make hammer time inclined to play blue. Yeah, I think Pioneer Ensul are the first things that come to mind. For me, I think this is very much a modern card. Again, in certain decks, specifically Lantern and Urza, because those decks want to ramp, and ever since Mox Opal was banned, they've been a little bit slow. And secondly, having to tap another artifact is actually not such a cost, because those decks are typically playing a lot of artifacts that are sort of sitting around not doing anything, like Lantern or Portable Hole. Right, yeah, I think, with Urza, it's good. Every time I look at an artifact, I think of Urza now, cause, yeah, Urza with this is pretty good. Also, a significantly better top deck in the late game than Springleaf Drum. Yes, absolutely. But I do agree that it's probably not replacing Springleaf Drum in decks like Hammer Time where the color really matters. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any thoughts, Roman? Yeah, I'm not experienced with all these modern decks. I think you guys have a lot more experience with this core than me. But in a Pioneer deck, this adding colorless. I think the color is important sometimes at least. In the blue-white deck. But maybe the mana is already good enough where it doesn't really matter. But, I like the versatility of this for sure. Alright, let's move on to Anchor to Reality, which is a 2 blue blue sorcery. As an additional cost to cast this spell, sack an artifact or creature, search your library for an equipment or vehicle card, put that card onto the battlefield, and then shuffle. It has mana value less than the sacrifice permanent's mana value. Scry 2. So this card immediately made me think of Tinker, but it's obviously a lot worse. It's not just that it costs more, it's that the range of things you can get with it is so much smaller. And the only thing I can think that is probably worth getting with it is Cauldra. So if for whatever reason you're playing a deck that doesn't have Stoneforge Mystic in it, or it's like a blue-white deck that you also just want more shots at hitting Cauldra, this can get Cauldra. But beyond that, I can't think of any use for it. Yeah, it's just so expensive, this card. The cost is just so high. Yeah, I agree. I'd want to get something like Elbrus, the Binding Blade, with this. I've always wanted to make that card work. Elbrus, the Binding Blade, is a 7-mana artifact. Legendary Equipment, Equipped Creature gets plus 1 plus 0, and then when the Equipped Creature deals combat damage to a player, unattach it, then transform it, it has an Equip cost of 1. And then on the other side it's a flying, intimidate, trample, 13-13, and whenever a player loses the game you would 13 plus 1 plus 1 counters on it. So basically, something that has a really high cost but the equip cost is low. Yeah, something that's the opposite of hammer to where the cost reduction of it being only 4 mana is probably huge, but again, it's still impractical because you have to you know, actually connect with the creature on turn 5 or whatever it is, so. This is also one of those cards that's just, the more they print additional vehicles and equipment, the the power level level it will just keep going up. Yeah, with this you can get, you can get Parhelion right. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, that one's pretty good, but ah, uh, they'll make something that's absurd, in the future probably, so, this is one to keep an eye on. Alright, uh, so moving on to Containment Construct. This is a 2-mana... 2-1 artifact creature, and it has, whenever you discard a card, you may exile that card from your graveyard. If you do, you may play that card this turn. So, almost immediately after this card was previewed, uh, 
this uh, Twitter user, Ethan Formicella, figured out what the combo is. And do you guys know of it, or should I go through it? Uh, I do not go through it. Okay, so the combo is, uh, so this pairs with Artificer's Intuition, which is a two-mana blue enchantment where you can play a, where you can pay a blue mana and discard an artifact to go find another artifact and put it in your hand. So that card uh, immediately jumped up a huge amount because of Speculators. And the combo is if you have Containment Construct and Artificer's Intuition, you have to have four LEDs in your deck along with Elixir of Immortality and then a Wincon. So it goes like this. You have Containment Construct and Artificer's Intuition in play and at least three blue mana. You activate the Artificer's Intuition and you discard any artifact. It doesn't matter what. You get LED. You then activate the Artificer's Intuition, which discards your LED, but it's not in your graveyard. It's an exile because of Containment Construct. You get a second LED. You cast the first LED. You activate Artificer's Intuition. You discard the second LED to get... And then you uh, sack the first LED in response so that you have a third LED in your hand and three blue. You then cast the second LED, which is Exiled to Containment Construct. You then activate Artificer's Intuition, discarding the third LED. You sack the second LED in response. You get Elixir of Immortality, which means you now have five blue floating and you have one LED left in your deck. You cast the third LED. You activate Artificer's Intuition. You discard Elixir of Immortality. You sack the LED in response. You get your fourth LED. You now have uh, six or seven blue mana, I forget. You cast the Elixir, which is not discarded. It's an exile because of Containment Construct. You then activate Elixir of Immortality, which leaves you with four blue available. You shuffle it and the other LEDs back into your deck and you have one LED left in your hand. So you're in the same position you started in, except that the artifact in your hand is an LED and you have one more mana than what you started with. So you can repeat the loop generating infinite mana. And then on the last loop, once you have infinite mana, instead of getting LED out of your deck or Elixir out of your deck with Artifices or Intuition, you can go search for something like Walking Ballista and kill your opponent. That's pretty cool. As long as it's not like, I mean, yeah, it's an excellent combo. I like that. That takes so much brain power to just figure that out. I didn't follow any of that. Yeah, I'll have uh, graphics up showing the loop, but it's kind of, it reminds me of like uh, Painter Servant where you need two different pieces and enough mana to presumably get both in the same turn. But you, you know, LED is already a card you might want to play in Legacy and then Artifices Intuition is like a tutor card that can potentially tutor for containment constructs. So even if you don't have one, you can go get it. I think the biggest strike against this combo is that you need to get both of them into play and then also have three blue mana. Yeah, so like, you play the intuition first, and then, you know, intuition's hard to interact with if you're not exactly like a prismatic ending deck. Mm -hmm. In Legacy. Well, you're, because you're in Legacy, you can use, like, Chrome Mox or Mox Diamond to power this out faster, so you could presumably get everything going by turn three. Yeah, and you have Soul Lands as well. You can go like, Soul Land, into Mox Diamond. This is a really good card. Mm -hmm. I imagine it's gotta be great for stuff like, um... Anya EDH decks that are all about madness and discarding stuff because then you just have access to everything. Yeah, it seems very good there. It's a, it's a card that looks so innocuous at first and then you realize just how many broken things you can do with it by discarding stuff. Yep, better keep an eye on one with nothing. Yep, <laughs> finally got there with one with nothing. Yep. So the next two cards are... Uh, I've grouped them together because they're kind of doing the same thing, or at the very least, they'd be in the same shell. They are Greasefang, Okiba Boss, and Mech Hanger. So Greasefang is a one white-black, 4-3 legendary creature rat pilot. 
At the beginning of combat on your turn, return target vehicle card from your graveyard to the battlefield. It gains haste. Return it to its owner's hand at the beginning of your next end step. And Mech Hanger is a land that taps to add colorless or taps to add one mana of any color, which you can use to cast a pilot or vehicle. Or has three and tap. Target vehicle becomes an artifact creature until end of turn. And specifically, uh, they're good with really any vehicle that you've binned and then want to uh, bring back or just turn into a creature without needing a crew cost. But very specifically, Grease Fang is great with Parhelion 2 because it not only brings the Parhelion 2 back from your graveyard, but it also has exactly enough power to crew it. Oh, that's real interesting. So if you, uh, so imagine you go like turn two, you do, you play something that lets you put Parhelion 2 into your uh, graveyard, like Goblin Engineer, uh, Faithless Mending, and then turn three, you play Grease Fang, you immediately return to Parhelion to the battlefield, uh, give it haste, and then crew it, attack, and then you get two 4-4 four, four Vigilant Flying Angels. So you're attacking for 13 damage, and you get to leave two bodies behind. Yeah, it's got staying power. This could slot into some kind of reanimation, vehicle-type deck. Or if that's what you're specifically trying to do, you could even play the Tinker with this as well, in like an Esper shell. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the card is unique and well-designed. Yeah, makes me want to play with it. Also, if you go into red for your third color, then you get access to Goblin Engineer and Trash for Treasure. Oh, Trash for Treasure's cool. Other uh, big artifact vehicles to crew are also... Probably the next best one after Parhelion would be Sky Sovereign. Sky Sovereign is very good as well. I like Mech Hanger too, like being able to pay four mana and crew a vehicle. You have any thoughts, Roman? Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see if there could be a Pioneer-type combo with it. In Pioneer, the removal is a little more constrained overall than Modern, where this card would just get bolted or passed, or, whereas in Pioneer, there's less disruption for this card, maybe, so this card with Parhelion, there's potential it could be an actual combo. I'm trying to think. In Pioneer there are the Soul Flayer decks which are similar type strategies. I don't know what you'd use to bin Parhelion early in a black-white based deck, but I think there's potential with this card. I think the other thing to note is that while this card is certainly powerful and interesting, the question is you're kind of doing the same thing that a Reanimator deck would do, so is this better than just playing Reanimator? In Modern I don't think so, but in Pioneer... Yeah, I think this is not a modern combo. Yet, until they print some more vehicles, or more, like, game-ending vehicles, but yeah, in Pioneer, the format's kind of wide open. With the exception of Phoenix being, probably the best deck, it's still very much an unsolved format. So, I would like to see something like this become a deck. Alright, so moving on, we have Secluded Courtyard, which is a, uh, it's just unclaimed territory, again but has another uh, clause stapled onto it. So just to go through it quickly, it's a land. As it enters, you choose a creature type. It taps for either colorless or one mana of any color, which you can only spend to either cast creatures of that type or activate their abilities. So it's a strict upgrade to unclaimed territory, or it's a card that lets you play up to 16 rainbow lands in your tribal deck. Yeah, slots right into all the tribal decks. A lot of the tribal decks are built with the unclaimed territory, Cavern of Souls in mind so their sideboards don't have many non-creature spells. So I think it's just great, right? You immediately, at the very least, replace all of your unclaimed territories. But if you're going full-on, tribal strategy, this just makes your mana base 12 utopia lands, and 
yeah, this is great for pretty much all tribal strategies, so I'm excited to see what might come out of the woodworks. Also, potentially, if you don't want the full 16 lands, it's possible that instead of replacing Unclaimed Territory, you replace Ziggurat, since there was always that tension between Ziggurat and Aethervile. Yeah, that makes sense, too. Alright, uh, so moving on. This is basically the section of cards that I picked out that were cards that are like similar to cards that already exist and are either strict upgrades or they're enough, they're close enough to them that they're worth mentioning. So Reckoner Bankbuster is a two mana 4-4 uh, four, four vehicle that enters the battlefield with three charge counters. You can pay two, tap, and remove a charge counter from it to draw a card. Then if there are no charge counters on it, you make a treasure, you make a 1-1 one, one colorless pilot creature token with... This creature crews vehicles as though its power were too greater, and Reckoner Bankbuster has crew three. It doesn't seem like much, but this card is very similar to Maze Mind Tome, which has shown up as a card occasionally, like in Karn Wishboards or Etron. Yeah, there was a point where Etron was playing four Maze Mind Tome in the main, and it was good. And I think this card is better than Maze Mind Tome. The four life gained in Etron did not matter, unless you were playing against Burn. And sometimes Mind Tome didn't even raise that. But yeah, having another pseudo Eldrazi in the deck is exactly where the deck wants to be. Alright, so let's move on to the next card, which is Scrap Welder. This is a 2 red 3 3 uh, creature goblin artificer, and it has tap, sacrifice an artifact with mana value X, return target artifact card with mana value less than X from your graveyard to the battlefield. It gains haste until end of turn. So this card to me, uh, Definitely has a powerful effect, but it feels just strictly worse than Goblin Engineer. Yeah, um, I'm wondering if it has Pioneer applications. I don't think this card is part of some standard combo. I think it's too expensive for what it does. Yeah, the fact that it says mana value less than X really makes it so there's no arc combo with it. There's no infinite combos with it, at least. Right. I mean, maybe there is, I, I don't see it, but... I just feel like it's kind of the same thing as Goblin Engineer, and then its effect is worse, and it costs more, so probably not worth playing. Yeah, not worth it. All right, uh, then we have Gloom Shrieker, which is one black green for an enchantment creature, Cat Beast. This is a 2-1 with Menace. When it enters the battlefield, you return target permanent card from your graveyard to your hand, and if Gloom Shrieker would die, exile it instead. Uh, the only reason I have this on here is because it's similar to Eternal Witness, but seems significantly worse in that... It exiles itself, so you can't do witness loops, and it doesn't get back any card, it only gets back permanence. And it's two colors. Yeah, this is uh, this is better than something like Nyx Weaver, Yarno, but it's still pretty far from Eternal Witness. The only, the only way that I can see this being potentially better than Witness is if it matters that it's an enchantment for some reason, but other than that, I can't think of one. Yeah, I can't really think of one either. As far as like, you know, blinking this, it's still pretty good. But definitely not as good as it could be. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of Eternal Witness decks recently that are also black. And the menace doesn't matter because you're not attacking with Witness. Yeah. Alright, so moving on, there is Tamiyo's Safekeeping. This is a green instant that has target permanent you control, gains hexproof and indestructible until end of turn, you gain two life. I mention this because it's very similar to Blacksmith Skill, which was a single white instant that did the same thing, except instead of gaining life, they gave the thing plus two plus two if it was an artifact creature. And that card has shown up as a protective spell in Hammer Time, so 
since this is so similar to it, maybe to show up somewhere. Yeah, this card looks annoying. I just don't know where it would show up. The first thing that came to mind was like Infect, but Infect already has Blossoming Calm and like other spells that protect their guys and pump them, so I don't think it can be there. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah, it seems more like a mono green aggro card in standard. Probably better than Snakeskin Veil, because Indestructible can get around Doomscar. Maybe it could show up in Yawgmoth, like that would be the other deck I would think of. That's a possibility. I feel like, yeah, I'm trying to think of any creatures you can court for that do this effect as well, and I can't really think of it. Actually, there's like, a uh, Loyal Companion, or is it, isn't it Loyal Companion? Yeah, every card that, every creature that does this effect I can think of is, is a white creature. Yeah, but you can court for white creatures, so, right. Mm -hmm. Alright, well, let's move on to the next one. So this is the first of a few uh, enchantments that are double-faced that transform into creatures. It is Azusa's Many Journeys. It is a one green saga, uh, enchantment saga. It has chapter one, you may play an additional land this turn. Chapter two, you gain three life. And then chapter three, exile it and return it to the battlefield transformed as a 3-3 three -three that has... Whenever this creature becomes blocked, untap up to three lands you control. This card, to me, looks similar to Explore, which was uh, two mana sorcery. You may play an additional land this turn and draw a card. But gaining three life and then becoming a 3-3 three -three seems to me to be a much worse effect than drawing a card in the decks that want to play Explore. So the only place that I can think of this showing up is if you're playing like... Uh, so what are the decks that typically play Explore? Like Amulet Titan or Scape Shift? If you wanted... Maybe this is like a sideboard card against Burn, since it's a card that gains life and lets you ramp. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think this card, as a Burn player, that matchup was already tough to begin with because they have, like, ballots and stuff in their sideboard, or I guess ballots or more of skate shift thing. I feel like those decks have the right tools already and this is kind of overkill because it does similar things to what their main deck cards do already. I don't know if it'll really be that good. Yeah, to me it seems pretty slow, and I agree that drawing the card, you want to replace itself, as another card from your deck, rather than a 3-3 that gains 3 life. With an ability that is very restricting, to the point where you have to use your mana, before you attack, and then they can just choose not to block it. To me, the only relevant ability on this is you may play an additional land this turn and explore does it better. I also think it's really weird that all of these uh, double face enchantment saga creatures exile themselves so you can't attack with them immediately, which was one of the things that they mentioned when they made suspend that it, that players wouldn't understand that you couldn't attack with your creature immediately. So they just gave haste to all of them. But these creatures specifically do not get that. I think they did it so that you wouldn't have uh, saga counters on the creatures, but it just feels like they should like all the creatures just should have had haste. Yeah. Uh, do they keep all the lore counters on it? No, so that's why they exile, is my thinking. Oh, uh, I see, I see, I see, okay. It's like similar to the, um, like the planeswalkers that were the ones that exile. The magic origins ones, that transform. Mm-hmm. Except those went from creatures into planeswalkers. Into planeswalkers, yeah. But I don't think there are any other like, other things that transformed by exile and then came back, outside of those. There definitely is, I can't. There's probably some of them that are getting, but for newer players at least, these cards will probably be pretty confusing. In Limited, I imagine there's going to be someone who's going to try and attack me because all the double-faced cards and all the creatures you could transform and attack with. Yeah. 
At least having them exile makes it very clear that these creatures cannot attack. All right, so let's move on to Michiko's Reign of Truth, which is a one and white saga that has chapters one and two. Target creature gets plus one plus one until end of turn for each artifact and or enchantment you control. And then chapter three, exile and return as Portrait of Michiko, which is a zero zero enchantment creature that gets plus one plus one for each artifact and or enchantment you control. So immediately this card reminds me of a few cards, uh, Cranial Plating, All That Glitters, and Nettle Cyst. Looks kinda slow. Really? I think this card's well costed, you know, it costs one and a white, it has an ability that, if you're in the right strategy, probably green-white enchantments. I guess limited is how I'm looking at this since it's a great card in limited. It's probably pack one, pick one worthy. Just because the body behind the strategy it's going to be in. Yeah, like green, white, and black, white have that. There's cards in those colors that care about having both in play. Green cares about casting enchantments. And there are cards in black that check if you have both an artifact and enchantment in play. Yeah, so seems like an important card to those strategies. Do you think this is good enough to see playing something like Modern Affinity? I personally don't think so. I don't have experience playing those type of. All that glitters has kind of taken that role in Pioneer at least with this sort of effect. Um, I don't think it'll see, you know, like high level, play in decks. But people are gonna put this in affinity for sure. The thing about these cards in limited and other formats is you can't attack with this card until turn 4, right? Yes. Turn 2 it comes in. Turn 3 it triggers. Turn 4 it exiles and transforms and comes back, so turn 5 is the earliest you can attack with it. Oh, it attacks on turn 5. So turn 5. I mean I'm a bit skeptical of this cycle. Even in limited. I mean they're all. I like that they're creatures that do things. But, not being able to attack with a turn 2 creature until turn 5 seems kinda bad. But at least this one has the potential to be really huge if you're in Pioneer or Modern or something. Alright, let's move on to Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Which is a 2 red... Saga that says chapter one, you create a 2-2 red goblin shaman creature token with whenever this creature attacks, create a treasure token. Chapter two, you may discard up to two cards if you do draw that many cards. And then chapter three, exile it and return it as uh, basically kiki-jiki, except it costs a mana to activate in addition to tapping. I think this card's great. I mean, it makes, uh, it makes two bodies with relevant abilities. And lets you filter through cards. Yeah, I like it a lot, I mean it's no actual kiki-jiki as far as combo potential, but it's still, a card that people are going to have to kill. I think the card it reminds me the most of is actually not kiki-jiki, but Season Pyromancer. Yeah, I agree with that. Is this card, modern playable, you think? Um... Um, it's possible, it could see play in like, a uh, mono-red prison strategies. I just think that any red card could see play in that strategy. So... Is this is this better or worse than Season Pyromancer? Because like the you're getting the body slower, but you're also able to filter the specific cards you want, but you also don't get to draw if you're empty-handed. And but then the end step, the uh, end phase of this as an as a Kiki Jiki is better than Pyromancer. Yeah, Pyromancer has the flashback ability. This might be better than Pyromancer. I think it's quite a strong card at the very least. And I think we'll show up somewhere. One of the good parts about Pyromancer is it spreads its power out pretty evenly. So like, this is, less power overall than a Pyromancer, with both of its, you know, with its last ability activated from the graveyard. Mm-hmm.
But this is like a threat you have to answer from the opponent. So I think maybe in combination with pyromancer this could be, you know, pretty potent. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's unique. It's super unique. The way the design is. I wouldn't be surprised seeing it in modern. Let's uh, move on to Tribute to Hirobi, which is a one and black saga, which has chapter one and two. Each opponent creates a one one black rat rogue creature token. And then chapter three, you exile it and you return it as a three three flying haste. With when it enters, you gain control of all rat tokens. And whenever it attacks, you may sacrifice another creature if you do draw a card. So basically, it's you play it, you give your opponent a token, then they get to attack you and you presumably don't want to block it because you want to gain control of the token. You then take your turn and do nothing except give them another token. They then attack you again, and again, you probably don't want to block, so you've taken three damage total, and then it flips into this creature, and you get the rats back and can immediately attack for three and sack one of the rats and draw. Yeah, this card is powerful. I like it a lot. Yeah, I like this card. I think that there's a lot of potential for the mono-black aggro deck to exist in standard right now, like a blood vile purveyor type of deck like that. So I like that this card. Like the 3-3 flying haste kind of reminds me of Rankle in a lot of ways, but it's also a 2-drop Rankle. I like that it combats 4 mana cards for its mana cost. It's a 2-drop at the end of the day and you don't really care about taking 3 points of damage overall unless your opponent is like, has a really aggressive draw. I guess, this card has a lot of potential, so I'm hopeful that there's a mono black deck in standard that can take advantage of this. Not sure about Pioneer or modern applications though. So the two things I wanted to point out with it were in EDH, since it gives the rat tokens to each opponent, all of your opponents get the rat tokens. But the problem with that is that they can just collude with each other to attack their rats into their other rats. So they can, as long as they're just, as long as their opponents are uh, clever, they can just attack each other. And you can lose all the tokens. And in modern, this has got to be the worst feeling in the world if you play it and give your opponent two rats and then they just prismatic ending it. Oh, that's true. Yeah, your opponent could abuse the rat tokens more than you could. That's why this card seems like more of a standard card to me than anything else. Think it's a good standard card. I think it's dangerous to play in other formats probably. But I think the dream of going turn 2 this into turn 3, another one, is pretty sweet. Alright, let's move on to Hidatsugu Consumes All. This is a one black red saga and it says chapter 1 destroy each non-land permanent with mana value 1 or less. Chapter 2, exile all graveyards, and then Chapter 3, exile and return it as a 3-3 trample with whenever it deals damage, put a plus 1 counter on it, and then whenever it deals damage to a player, if it dealt 10 or more damage to that player this turn, they lose the game. So it's very similar to something like Engineered Explosives. It's, you know, I think it's actually almost exactly like Engineered Explosives on its first chapter. 3 mana to blow up all the 1-mana permanents, although it also blows up all the 0-mana permanents as well, and then also exiles the graveyards. Yeah, this is a, I mean this is a control card. It's kind of strange that the deck that I can think of that, that it's the best against is Death Shadow, since it clearly so it clears away pretty much all their creatures and exiles them, but it's also in the same colors as Death Shadow. Yeah, but they can't play it because of Lurus, which I don't know why they would want to. To me, it's kind of weird that it's red-black. It feels very limiting to the decks that would want to play it because of the color. So this is good against, let's see, Death Shadow, Hammer Time, the Rhino Cascade deck. Yep. But this is just a sideboard card, right? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, but like what decks, for this mana cost, would really want this though? 
I think the issue is the colors really like I think it's a better card than EE but it's just like I can't think of a black red deck that's like a control deck unless you sideboard it as traditional Jund maybe sure I guess yeah I could see Jund running this that's like traditional Jund right right as like a one of in the sideboard I guess I mean that's how much you care about those matchups yeah Jund tends to be pretty good against those matchups Another thing, I understand this card's a mythic rare, but this card's $15 right now. Really? I mean, yeah. seems like pretty hype. I'm just reading the second ability of when it's flipped, if it's dealt 10 or more. The Yeah, the third ability doesn't matter. That's never happening. Yeah, if it's dealt that turn, exactly. It's probably not gonna matter at all. It reminds me of the green-red mana land in June that gets counters on it, or that's when it attacks, right? Maybe it has applications. All right, moving on to the next ones. I've grouped these two cards together because they're kind of similar. This is Generous Visitor, which is a single green mana for a 1-1 that says whenever you cast enchantments, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature. And Kami of Transience, which is one and a green for 2-2 Trample, which also says whenever you cast enchantments, put a plus one plus one counter on it. And at the beginning of each end step, if an enchantment was put in your graveyard from the battlefield this turn, you may return Kami of Transience from your graveyard to your hand. I wanted to highlight these cards specifically because they seem very powerful in an aggressive enchantment strategy where you're just playing lots of cheap enchantments. But at the same time, I can't think of any actual deck like that that exists. And traditionally, the Enchantment Matters decks have been the Enchantress Presence type decks that are more interested in kind of dirtling around drawing cards. And the only other deck I can think of that plays lots of cheap enchantments is Boggles, which doesn't want to play either of these creatures. I think, I mean we saw with our, what is it, the Tamayos, card, the white 2 drop that keeps pumping your creatures equal to the number of enchantments you control. We could see some kind of like, green-white, enchantments, aggro-style deck that's like, efficient, and grows the creatures as you play them. That deck would probably play on Thin Ice as its removal and other cheap stuff. Yeah, you probably play like, outside of life's hope, whatever the sacrifice it give protection from color, like just low to the ground, things like all that glitters, nettle cyst, is nettle cyst enchantments too. Yes, it also includes enchantments. Yeah, I think that'd be a cool little strategy to see. So it'd have to be a new shell then? Yeah, definitely. In terms of like, standard play, I don't like these cards rather than just the straight-up mono-green cards which are just so powerful for their cost already. Old Growth Troll, the Werewolf for 2, the 2-mana Werewolf that's a 3-3. I think that, these cards, at least in standard, don't impress me as much as cards that already exist. Alright, so we're creeping up on our time limit here. Do you guys have any more time to stick around, or do you have to go? I have to go. Uh, you Roman? I could stick around for like, 10 more minutes, max, if you wanna keep talking with me. All right, so I think that's what we'll do. So thank you very much for joining today, Ivan. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been awesome getting to share my thoughts on the new set. I'm very excited to see the exact applications these cards will have in the near and distant future. All right, yeah, and I hope we can do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. Hope to see you in Philly, Ivan. See you there. So uh, Roman, moving on to the next card. Roadside Reliquary. Roadside Reliquary, which is a colorless land that taps for colorless, or you can pay two, tap, and sacrifice it. You draw a card if you control an artifact, and you draw a card if you control an enchantment. So the obvious benefit of this is that it's a land that could potentially draw two cards. The downside of it is obviously that it's a colorless land. You need to control an artifact and an enchantment. So the best two ways I can think of doing that are 
There are Urza Saga decks where Urza Saga is an enchantment, but it's also in decks that have lots of artifacts. There's Hammer Time, which plays Urza Saga, but also plays Sigarda's Aid, uh, which is also an enchantment, as well as Hardened Scales, uh, which is an enchantment. It's full of, uh, a deck full of artifacts. And outside of that, there's the food decks, which sometimes play Trail of Crumbs, which is an enchantment that makes a food token. So it's an enchantment and an artifact. Overall, I think it's going to depend on how they can manage to play a colorless land, because a colorless land also competes with any other pre-existing colorless land that's better at all. So like that's the issue, because Hardened Scales and Hammer Time are playing Urza Saga and Inkmoth Nexus, which is eight copies of colorless lands already. Yeah, and you don't want to dilute the color producing for the spells you actually need to cast. That's why I'm a little skeptical on this one. You have to pay three total just to potentially have a divination. The cost is a little much for modern formats. Maybe Pioneer. I think in like the blue-white. Ensal decks. You have Ensal. I feel like in Pioneer there's been a lot more room to play around with what lands produce colorless like this. This land's not an artifact, but in those decks you have Ensal and a bunch of artifacts. So maybe that's more of an application than the modern one since it's so restrictive on the mana cost. Yeah, I think the biggest issue is not even the needing to have an artifact and enchantment. It's just the, that it's a colorless land and it's competing with so many other colorless lands. I think this card. I'm actually curious how this card will play in Limited 2. Green, white, and black, white are like the enchantment matters decks. But like, how much can you dilute your mana base by playing one of these? I think one could be totally fine in Limited. But, depends on the mana. This one I think has potential. Alright, let's move on to the next cards. I wanted to highlight these. This is the Invoke Cycle, which is a series of instants and sorceries, mostly sorceries, only one of them is an instant, that all cost 5 mana, and they are unique in that they have 4 of specific color pips in their cost, so like 1 white, 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 white. Yeah, these cards are so expensive. They're expensive and they are very restrictive on the colors, and I don't think any of, the, of their abilities are worth it, so I'll just go through all of them really quick. The white one is return target permanent card from your graveyard to the battlefield, distribute four plus one counters among any number of creatures or vehicles. The blue one is gain control target artifact or creature and untap it. The black one is target opponent, sacks a creature, and if they can't, they lose two life and you draw a card and you repeat the same process for an enchantment and a planeswalker. The red one is you may cast up to two instants or sorceries, the total mana value six or less from your graveyard and or hand without paying your mana costs. And then if the spell would be put into your graveyard, exile them and you also exile this spell. And then the green one is you make two, four, five tokens that each have your choice of either Vigilance, Reach, or Trample. I think these cards, first of all, are just for standard, but even in standard they are so restrictive. I think they're not only restrictive, but are these effects even necessarily worth it for five mana? Invoke the wines we already have tempted by the Auric which is one cheaper. I think they're just way, way too costly. You have to be a monocolor deck. And you know, Invoke the Ancients is kinda cool and unique. It's 5 mana make 2 4 fives, but at the same time, is that better than playing on 5, a Renan 7, or playing Unnatural Growth? I don't think the answer's yes. The only one I saw as having any potential is the red one, since you can cast the free suspend spells off of it, so I'm trying to think, can you use this as an instant speed way of grabbing like 2 crashing footfalls out of your graveyard? But even then, Finale Promise is already a card in Modern that doesn't see play in the deck. Right. I think these cards are just way too expensive to see play in any format. The cost is so high. Alright, let's move on from there. We have Kaido Shizuki, which is one of the first cards that was previewed from the set. It is a 1 blue and black planeswalker with 3 loyalty. At the beginning of your end step, if Kaido entered the battlefield this turn, he phases out. So basically, the first turn after you play him, your opponent can't get rid of it. 
It has plus one, draw a card, then discard a card unless you attacked. Minus two, create a one, one unblockable ninja token. And then minus seven, you get an emblem with whenever a creature you control deals damage to, or deals combat damage to a player, search your library for a blue or black creature card and put it onto the battlefield. I'm curious if this card can make blue black rogues be decent in Pioneer. So like, let's assume best case scenario. You attack with some kind of creature, you play this, you draw a card, you don't discard anything since you attacked. And since you attack, presumably you don't have any blockers, but your opponent can't kill it because it phases out. And then you get to untap and now have your choice of making a token or drawing another card. But if you don't have a creature that can attack, then it's three mana and you loot twice or loot and make a one one. I'm trying to think of applications this could have. In standard you have, I'm blanking on the name, but there's that blue-black merfolk from Zendika Rising. That one has ninjutsu, essentially. Oh, like the four mana one, or it comes in for four? It's a five mana four four, and the ninjutsu is like two blue-black. I could see that potentially. This planeswalker has cool evasion the turn you play it so it doesn't automatically get killed by attacking or something. I don't think it's a good enough card, but it's definitely interesting, and also it's another three mana walker that can draw cards, so it can get there, maybe. Yeah, I'm kind of curious of there's a blue-black deck in Pioneer with all the rogues that have been printed over the past couple years like Thieves Guild Enforcer, and you have the one from Zendika Rising, the one Three Lord. Yeah, you have evasive merfolk that have flying so you can keep drawing cards with Kato. I feel like this card would have been really really good if it was printed a year ago. I'm not sure, in the current standard format, if we have enough rogues or things to make it work. I could see this having historical pioneer applications. Alright, uh, moving on. Yeah, I have time for one or two more. Do you want to wrap it up with the planeswalkers? Sure, you want to just jump forward to the wanderer? Yeah, the wandering emperor. Okay, so the Wandering Emperor is two white-white for a Planeswalker that has no subtype. It is three loyalty, it has flash, and as long as the Wandering Emperor entered the battlefield this turn, you may activate her loyalty abilities anytime you could cast an instant. She has plus one, put a plus one counter on up to one target creature. It gains first strike until end of turn. Minus one, create a two-two uh, two white samurai creature token with vigilance. And minus two, exile target tapped creature, you gain two life. So presumably you're playing this in a traditional like blue-white control deck and you're using it as a threat that's also a removal spell that you can flash in. So either your opponent does nothing on their turn or nothing that you care about and you flash this in and make a token or your opponent attacks and you flash this in and exile their creature and then untap and I guess probably make a token or if you exiled something on the previous turn you plus it so it doesn't die. My issue with it is, while I think it definitely has a certain power level, if you compare it to other 4-mana threats that you're playing in your control deck, like this just pales in comparison to something like Jace the Mind Sculptor. But even if you don't compare it to that and you just say, okay, well, it's a flash threat and there's also, it's a thing that sticks around, is this any better than something like Subtlety, which is also a flash threat that sort of answers another threat from your opponent and then has a body stick around? And Subtlety is not a card that blue-white control decks are main decking. Yeah, I think this card is more of a standard card than anything else. It seems interesting, where it could have applications in standard control decks where you're playing a way to kill attackers at instant speed, or just make tokens. I think the problem is the plus ability is not really good in control decks. Although I do like if you make a samurai and then start plus one on with this. The samurai does have vigilance, so yeah, you'll have something still to block with at least. But I think power level wise, because of the mana cost, I think overall this just seems like more of a standard card. Alright, do you have time to go over Tamiyo? Yeah, let's look at Tamiyo real fast. Okay. 
So Tamio is a is a uh, five mana planeswalker that costs two green blue and then a hybrid Phyrexian green blue. It's a five loyalty walker with completed, which says that the hybrid mana can be paid with either green blue or two life. But if you paid life for it, it enters with two fewer loyalty counters. It has plus one tap up to one target artifact or creature. It doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. Minus X, exile target non-land permanent card with mana value X from your graveyard. Create a token that's a copy of that card. And minus seven, create Tamiya's Notebook, a legendary colorless artifact token with spells you cast cost two less to cast and tap draw a card. What do you think of this? Yeah, I'm kind of curious where this card will end up. I was thinking about five color Niv in Pioneer, because you get to exile a Niv from your graveyard and make a copy of it. Isn't Niv only on cast though? Isn't it a cast trigger? Oh, is it a cast trigger? I thought it was an enter the battlefield. Let me check. It's reborn, yeah. It is enters the battlefield. Okay, so it does work. Yeah, so that was my first thought with this card. I could definitely see this card doing something in standard. I don't know what that would really be. I like that this taps Essica's Chariot. Old Growth Trolls. I don't think there's any modern applications this card has. I can't think of one. It seems too expensive for that. Yeah, even at 4 mana. I don't even know if this is. 4 mana comes in with 3 loyalty, then you can either Frostbreath something or make a token copy of some kind of cheap spell from your graveyard. This, I think could do something in the Niv-Mizzard decks. Just because you can get back a Niv that's been countered or something. That seems cool to me. Again, I don't know if you'd play more than one copy of this card. In standard, I don't know if this card would even do anything really in standard because there's not any blue-green decks that exist. I think it's an interesting card for sure that has. It's an interesting kind of countering card that has protection. It has ways to generate value in a permanent base deck. I'm curious to see where it ends up. But right now, I'm not sure what it can really do. All right, well, that was the last card you can stick around for, so thank you very much for joining me today, Roman. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right, and again, I hope we can do this another time, so I'm going to finish up the other cards on my own, and hopefully next time we can schedule more time for this. All right. Awesome. All right, take care. See ya. So next we have Satoru Umazawa. This is a one blue and black legendary creature human ninja. It's a 2-4. It has whenever you activate a ninjutsu ability, look at the top three cards of your library, put one of them into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. This ability triggers only once each turn. And each creature card in your hand has ninjutsu two blue and black. So I think the obvious like gimmicky novelty factor thing that people were looking at when they first saw this card was that you can give Blightsteel Colossus ninjutsu four and you know instantly kill people with one hit with that card. But I think more realistically, that's not going to happen. This has the same issue as all the other ninjutsu cards, which is it's really difficult to have a creature that you can attack with that's not going to get blocked and then also have the exact right card that you need. This card's also a three mana creature that when it enters, it doesn't do anything. It does have card advantage. It's limited to once per turn, but it's still a good amount of card advantage. I think it's interesting that, so in EDH, you have Yuriko as the ninja commander of choice, and that card is much better than Satoru, but... That card's also a bit boring in that you're kind of just doing the same thing every game. You're just casting some variation of time warp and then just hitting people over and over. Whereas Satoru Mazawa, even though it's not as powerful, it's more interesting to build around. There's other things to do with it. So it's not as good as Yuriko, but it's it's a more interesting card. Maybe a more casual ninja deck would be interested in playing Satoru. Uh, next up, we have Nashi, Moon Sage's Scion. This is one black black for a 3-2 legendary creature rat ninja with ninjutsu three and a black. Whenever Nashi Moonsage's Scion deals combat damage to a player, exile the top card of each player's library. Until end of turn, you may play one of those cards. If you cast a spell this way, pay life equal to its mana value rather than paying its mana cost. 
So it's a black creature. Maybe you can get a card every turn. You pay life for it instead of having it. So it's kind of reminiscent of Dark Confidant, but you cast the card rather than just getting it. But it still has the same issue as Satoru and all the other ninjas, which is that you got to ninja this in. It's, again, a three-mana creature. When it enters, it doesn't do anything. You have to have a creature that can attack, and then you're paying four to ninja this. What if they just kill it in response? You spent your whole turn paying four for nothing and bouncing the creature you already have in play. So, it's, again, it's definitely powerful. It's doing a powerful effect, letting you cast spells for, you know, quote-unquote free. But it's still got that same issue. So could this show up? Maybe. I don't think so but it has a it has an effect that is good enough for it to have shown up all right next we have colossal sky turtle this is a four green green and blue six five enchantment creature turtle with flying and ward two and then it has channel it has two different channel abilities the first is two and a green return target card from your graveyard to your hand and then one and a blue return target creature to its owner's hand so i think the seven mana cost of the creature makes that part of it unplayable, but where it could show up is potentially in Cascade decks where you might want the ability to bounce something or recur a card from your graveyard and then bin this as a you know huge creature in your graveyard, maybe in something like Living End. I don't know if that's better than the normal just cycling creatures that draw cards, but this does give you an answer to uh, stacks pieces, other things that you might want to bounce. It's another way of recurring another Cascade card if you're drawing later in the game and you don't have a Cascade card in your hand. So I think it could maybe show up. Next is Touch the Spirit Realm. This is a two and a white enchantment. When Touch the Spirit Realm enters the battlefield, exile up to one target artifact or creature until Touch the Spirit Realm leaves the battlefield. And it has channel one white, discard it, exile target artifact or creature, return it to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of the next end step. So I think... It's sort of a modal O-Ring slash Ephemerate. And while it's definitely worse than either of those two cards, and O-Ring hasn't really been a playable card for a really long time, it sometimes shows up in like Enchantress decks, but for the most part, it's not playable. And this is even more restrictive than O-Ring because it can't hit any type. It is interesting that it's a blink effect and a removal spell. And one of the problems with Ephemerate is that you can have situations where you draw Ephemerate, where you know, you're in the top deck, mode and you draw ephemerate later in the game and you have nothing to blink it with and then ephemerate is just a dead draw whereas this is always a removal spell even if you don't have anything to blink so maybe it could show up there i really doubt it would replace ephemerate since ephemerate is just so efficient but maybe it could show up as like an additional part of that or maybe if there was a blink deck that also wanted enchantments or also wanted removal so uh, this card's interesting all right, next up we have Tameshi, Reality Architect. This is two and a blue for a 2-3 legendary creature Moonfolk Wizard. It says whenever one or more non-creature permanents are returned to hand, re draw a card. This ability triggers only once each turn. And X white, return a land you control to its owner's hand. Return target artifact or enchantment card with mana value X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Activate only as a sorcery. So obviously this this has some kind of an uphill battle because it's a three mana, two, three that can get bolted, doesn't do anything when you play it, but it does have card advantage that is built right into the card because you can bounce your own stuff to trigger it to draw more cards. And where this is really interesting is that you can start to pay just the single white mana and return zero mana cards from your graveyard. So the ones that come to mind immediately are things like Urza Saga, Lotus Bloom, and Mishra's Bobble. And you can keep recurring value in that way. Uh, it does have the problem of it will make you start to fall behind on tempo because you're bouncing your own lands. But if you played this card in something like, let's say, Amulet Titan, you could use Azusa and Ride of the Elysian Grove to offset that. So maybe you can, you know, bounce your own land and return a thing and then just Azusa play the land back immediately. It's also interesting that it can bounce your lands and uh, Amulet Titan's already a deck that wants to bounce its own lands. 
you can bounce your Valakuts, you can bounce the Urza Sagas that you already have in play. So there's a lot of applications to this. If this does show up in Modern, I think Amulet Titan's the most likely place for it. Will it show up there? I'm not sure. But it's, again, a powerful card, can draw cards, can recur things from the graveyard, so it's interesting. Next up is Banishing Slash. This is a white-white sorcery that says destroy up to one target artifact, enchantment, or tapped creature. Then if you control an artifact and an enchantment, create a 2-2 white samurai creature token with vigilance. So on the best case scenario side of the card, it's a two-mana removal spell that's flexible and can hit multiple types and creates a token. Now, realistically, it has a lot of restrictions. The creature that you target has to be tapped. It costs double white. It's sorcery speed. In order to get the token, you need to control an artifact and an enchantment. And I don't see a lot of really good places that this could show up, but it's very interesting that it's such a flexible card and such a good rate for how cheap it is. I'm not sure where this would show up, if anywhere. Maybe blue-white control or something. But again, pretty interesting card. I don't think we've really seen much of uh, any cards like this before it's just like a very very good charm in that sense i think if anything holds it back it's the gonna be the double white pips making it just too difficult to cast next up we have kodama the west tree this is a two and a green for a three three legendary creature spirit with reach modified creatures you control have trample and modified creatures are ones that are either uh, have equipments or auras attached to them or they have counters on them and then it says, whenever a modified creature you control deals combat damage to a player, search your library for a basic land card, put it onto the battlefield tapped, and then shuffle. So I think immediately this card has a problem where the two abilities that it has do not really go together. Where it's saying that you want to play lots of cheap creatures so that you can have them all in play when you play Kodama and then immediately attack your opponent and trigger and get a bunch of lands. But that means you're playing a bunch of small aggressive creatures as opposed to a deck that wants to land ramp a whole bunch. So right there, there's already an immediate tension where the abilities are not working together. Then you got to think, what decks can this actually go into? So you want modified creatures. So you're going to want, what, Hammer Time, Boggles, uh, Hardened Scales. These are decks that probably, again, they don't want this card. They don't care about ramping. They don't care to have this card take the space of another card that's in their deck that could be better. So if we ignore the, the uh, traditional competitive formats like that, what about EDH? What about Kadama the Westry as a commander? Again, the problem is that when you look at the small modified creatures, you're typically looking at you know, creatures that have 1-1 one -one counters on them. And the only creature I can really think of that is good, that's cheap and has counters on it, is Walking Ballista. And then after that, you're playing just a bunch of dorky, you know, modular creatures that are 1-1s. One and the other problem is that even if you go that route, you have the issue of there are other green, uh, mono-green commanders that are better ramp commanders than Kodama. So like Silvalahar the Wilds or Yisan the Wanderer Bard are just far better mono-green commanders than Kodama. Now, if you don't care about that and you just want to play some kind of janky, casual, modified creatures deck where Kodama's ramping you with a bunch of basic lands, that's fine. But in terms of its power level, it's just dwarfed by those other cards. Next, we have Spirit Sisters Call. This is a three white black, so five mana enchantment that says at the beginning of your end step, choose target permanent card in your graveyard. You may sacrifice a permanent that shares a card type with the chosen card. If you do, return the chosen card from your graveyard to the battlefield and it gains, if this permanent would leave the battlefield, exile it instead of putting it anywhere else. The first thing that came to mind is that you can use it to sack itself and get a bigger enchantment back from your graveyard, something like Omniscience. The problem with that is that there already exists a card that has the exact same cost called Obsidot's Aid, 
which is a sorcery that's also three white and black that says return target permanent card from your graveyard to the battlefield. So clearly the ability to return something like Omniscience is not good enough, otherwise this would already be seeing play. So the next idea would be, okay, do you not use this to abuse something like Omniscience, but you use it as more of a value generating engine because this keeps triggering every end step and you can keep sacking things and bringing different permanents back into play. That could maybe be good enough, but the problem is again that this is a five mana enchantment. And being a five mana enchantment, it has a really steep cost that needs to justify itself. And white and black are the colors you would typically see in something like an Esper Control deck or maybe like Smallpox, and these decks are not really interested in this card. But it is worth mentioning as sort of a value engine that could potentially see play. It's just being five mana really puts it uh, out of reach for seeing play for the most part. Next, we have Experimental Synthesizer. This is a one mana red artifact that says when it enters or leaves the battlefield, exile the top card of your library until end of turn, you may play that card. And then it also has two red, sac sacrifice it, create a 2-2 white samurai creature token of vigilance, activate only as a sorcery. I think that that second ability of the samurai part is just kind of a little bit of extra text. You're probably not going to use that much. What I see this card used more for would be a cheap artifact that you can play in artifact-based strategies that generates a card advantage because it can exile two cards when it enters and leaves. So I see this being played in something more like an Oswald Fiddlebender deck or maybe a Thopter Foundry deck where you can play this to generate a card later in the game. You can very cheaply uh, sack it to some other ability that you already wanted to sack stuff for and then generate another card that you already wanted. So it's a, for a long time uh, since Arkham's Astrolabe has been banned. There has not been a good option for a one mana artifact that comes down and produces card advantage. So this would be the next option. So again, something like uh, Oswald Fiddlebender, Thopter Foundry, Goblin Engineer deck, something that would already want a cheap artifact that can produce card advantage and then can cheaply sacrifice it to get the second card out of it. Next, we have Discover the Impossible. This is a two and a blue instant that says, look at the top five cards of your library, exile one of them face down and put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. You may cast the exiled card without paying its mana cost if it's an instant spell with mana value two or less if you don't put that card in your hand. So right off the bat, this only gets instant spells. All of the uh, no mana suspend cards are all sorceries, so this does not work with those cards. The next question would be, what exactly do you want to do with this? Because on rate, this seems worse than other cards that you would already play in something like Storm where Pieces of the Puzzle, for example, is a three mana sorcery that can find you two cards as opposed to only one card. Or if you wanted to look at the top five and pick a specific card, you have, uh, I think it's See-Through Depths or uh, one of those other arcane spells that's two mana and you look at top five and pick one of the spells in there. The difference here is that you get to free cast the spell if it's two or less. And if you don't uh, cast it or it's not an instant, you can then just put the card in your hand to draw a card. I don't think this is actually good enough. I don't think you want to pay three to essentially draw a card or find a card off of the top five cards. Even if you can cast an instant among them for cheap, like maybe a removal spell or something, I don't think you really want that. And there are better options for either generating card advantage or filtering for specific cards or free casting things. But I thought it was worth mentioning. Next is Tempered in Solitude. This is a two mana red enchantment that says whenever a creature you control attacks alone, exile the top card of your library, you may play that card this turn. So it's interesting that this is a two mana spell that can generate repeated card advantage. The downsides being you have to attack with creatures to do that. You don't get to actually draw the cards, you have to play them immediately. And 
you can only attack alone. The first thing I thought of when I saw this card was to play it in something like Red Prowess or Burn as like a cheap card that can continuously get you more cards. But the problem is those decks are kind of like swarmy aggro, de aggro decks that want to play lots of creatures and attack with lots of creatures. But this thing only triggers if you attack with a single creature. Uh, decks that are only attacking with single creatures might be something like Boggles, where they're loading up all of their auras onto one creature, or something like Hammer Time, where you're just putting a hammer on one creature. And this is a card that doesn't lend itself well to those strategies. It's in a color that those decks are not already in. So I can't think of where you would want this card, but it is very notable as a, as a very cheap way to repeatedly gain card advantage. So maybe something like a Ragavan EDH deck might want this, or a deck that's playing uh, the Zero Mana Cobalt Partner Commander that can just attack each turn and you start generating cards with it. Next is Weaver of Harmony. This is a two mana, two, two green enchantment creature snake druid that says other enchantment creatures you control get plus one, plus one, and it has green tap, copy target activated or triggered ability you control from an enchantment source. You may choose new targets for the copy. Mana abilities can't be targeted. So I think the the enchantment lord part of this card is not the part that stands out. It's the copy part, and it's because this is a combo piece with either Jeskai Ascendancy or Intruder Alarm as long as you have a Mono Dork in play. So let's say you have Weaver of Harmony and Birds of Paradise, and you have Jeskai Ascendancy in play. You cast a spell. Jeskai Ascendancy triggers. You can then use the Birds of Paradise to pay Weaver of Harmony's ability and then copy the Jeskai Ascendancy untap or the Intruder Alarm untap if you play a creature onto the battlefield instead of a spell, and then untap Weaver of Harmony plus birds, and then with the ability still on the stack, you can copy the ability again over and over and over, infinitely untapping your creatures. Now, you're not generating any mana with that unless you have a second mana dork to generate more mana, which you might have, in which case you can then uh, copy the Jeskai Ascendancy loot trigger for Intruder Alarm, it's a little bit harder to do because you need some other way of either pumping or drawing more cards to keep this combo going. But it is very interesting. That is kind of a cheap way to do that. I think the biggest issue is the curve of how this is going to happen. So imagine turn one, you go, you play a land, you play Birds of Paradise. Turn two, you play another land, you cast Weaver of Harmony. And then turn three, you play a land, and then you play Jeskai Ascendancy. But you now only have one mana, and you still need to cast a spell to trigger the Ascendancy. And that's the problem. So you then would need to have, in addition, you would have had to play either a second Mono Dork on turn two, or you have to play a free spell, something like Noxious Revival or Mishra's Bobble, so that you can get it going, because just uh, casting the spell, you won't have the mana left over to copy the ability. Next is Jingataxius Progress Tyrant. This is a 5 blue blue 5-5 five five legendary Phyrexian Praetor. It says whenever you cast an artifact, instant, or sorcery spell, copy that spell, you may choose new targets for the copy. This ability triggers only once each turn. And whenever an opponent casts an artifact, instant, or sorcery spell, counter that spell, this ability triggers only once each turn. So it's a card that can generate a sort of a card advantage, uh, resource advantage, and that you're copying your own spells, and it denies your opponent the ability to cast at least one of the similar kind of spell. So it's hard to remove. It's kind of like a Cure Great Glass Spinner, where you need multiple spells in the turn to get rid of it. But it's seven mana. It's way too expensive. You're not going to see it in most constructed formats as a reanimator target. It's worse than other reanimator targets like Archon of Cruelty or Gristlebrand, other things that you can reanimate. And even in EDH, this card is not fantastic. It's a seven mana creature that doesn't do anything the turn you play it. You have to untap, 
and then cast your next spell. That has to be a spell that's good enough that you want to copy it. You only get to copy the first one you play, and it doesn't trigger an additional time. And then your opponents are still able to cast stuff through this. This is not a hard stacks piece. They can just cast one spell, get it countered, and then cast another spell and kill your Jingataxius, or they can just play their creatures or play their commander through it. So while it is definitely a big, powerful card, even in EDH, I don't think it's that great. Next is Hinata Dawncrowned. This is a Jeskai creature that costs four, so it's one blue, red, white. It is a 4-4 legendary Kirin spirit. It has flying and trample. Spells you cast cost one less to cast for each target, and spells your opponent's cast cost one more to cast for each target. So it's a creature that taxes your opponent's removal, presumably, and makes your cards cost less. So the most powerful application you can use for this card is to cast cards like By Force or Heliod's Intervention, where the amount of targets that you're casting scales to the amount of cost that the Hinata is reducing. So for example, you can play Heliod's Intervention for just two white mana and then destroy any number of artifacts or enchantments on the board. By Force, just pay one red mana, destroy any number of artifacts on the board. You can also use Curse of the Swine to pay just blue-blue and exile as many creatures as you want. You, there's a Dance of the Mance for white and blue, and you can return any number of artifacts. Artifacts or enchantments from your graveyard to the field. There's the a new card, Disorder in the Court, which is white and blue X, and you exile, or you blink any number of creatures and investigate that many times, so you make that many clues. And I think most powerful of all, there's Paradoxical Outcome, where Hinata turns that card into a single blue mana at instant speed to return any number of non-land, uh, non-token permanents you control to the owner's hand and draw that many cards. This card is obviously a very interesting, unique, and powerful commander card. I don't necessarily know that it's as good as other commanders that you could play in these color combinations, especially when you have options like uh, the Jeska Planeswalker, uh, Jeska Thrice Reborn that can partner with a white-blue commander, or... You just have like other commanders that can do things. I also think there need to be more cards like Paradoxical Outcome and Heliod's Intervention and so forth that you can use with Hanada to make it good. And it's especially problematic when you draw those cards and you either haven't cast Hanada yet or they killed it before you can cast them so that you don't get the full value out of those cards. Those cards are sort of like, you know, the best use case scenario, sort of magical Christmas land scenario where you play Hanada and then you play Heliod's Intervention, you like blow up all of your opponent's stuff. That's probably not going to happen as much as it looks like, but it's definitely a very fun looking commander to build around. As for non-EDH constructed formats, it has a good rate. It's a 4-4 flyer. It taxes your opponent to target you, but I don't think you can afford to play anything else really in in that kind of deck. Like you're not going to play a deck with Hinata and then Heliod's Intervention or a deck with Hinata and Paradoxical Outcome. Unless you specifically can create a deck that has combo potential with Paradoxical and Hinata, but Paradoxical Outcome decks are typically, they're, they're not, they don't tend to be that good to begin with as far as I'm aware. And when they do show up, you can use something like Urza to just generate blue mana and then play with Paradoxical Outcome and draw cards and play a bunch of zero mana artifacts. And then finally, I wanted to talk about uh, two of the cards from the Kamigawa Commander decks. First is Ruthless Technomancer. This is a three and a black two four creature that says when it enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice another creature you control. If you do create a number of treasure tokens equal to its power and it has two and a black sacrifice X artifacts, return target creature card with power X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield, X can't be zero. 
And I think immediately when people saw this, they looked at it and they see a creature that can generate treasures and they start thinking of Dockside Extortionist, but this is nothing like that. This is far worse. In fact, I don't know what you're really supposed to do with this creature because you're paying four mana and sacrificing another creature to generate some treasures, which the creature would have to be, you know, it would have to have quite the power in order to generate enough treasures for that to be worth it. It can't sack itself. And then you're losing resources because you're sacking the creature. If usually the disposable creatures that you want to sacrifice are things like random tokens that are one ones that don't matter. But here you need a creature that has high power so you can generate enough treasures for it to be uh, to be uh, valuable to sack that creature. And I don't think that's worth it for four mana. There's many other ways of producing tons of tons of fast mana for cheaper than what this card is offering. And then the recursive ability of sacking artifacts to return artifacts it's interesting that it chooses power instead of mana value. I looked into what exactly can you return to this? Are there any sort of like combo loops that you can do to constantly recur things? And the creatures that are around to recur with this kind of thing are things like uh, Mer Battlesphere or Precursor Golem, where they're artifact creatures that generate either as many tokens as their power is or uh, more. But the problem is that you're still not generating any mana off of recurring those creatures. So yes, you can sack them and then return themselves or return other things in order to bring them back again, but you're not actually accomplishing anything because you're always, uh, you're never netting any mana or even being mana neutral in those exchanges. And then for our last card, we have Universal Surveillance, which is X blue, 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 sorcery, improvise, which means your artifacts can help cast this spell. Each artifact you tap after you've done activated, after you're done activating mana abilities, pays for one, so it's artifact convoke, and it says draw X cards. This is not a new effect. There are many cards in EDH that already uh, are, you know, X mana draw X cards. There's things like Stroke of Genius, Blue Sun Zenith. This card is specifically interesting and in that you can use your artifacts to help pay for it. How many artifacts do you need to do in order for that to be worth it? Probably four or more. So you're paying three mana to draw four plus cards. So you need to be a dedicated artifact deck with lots of cheap artifacts that you can use to help pay for this. And those artifacts have to be artifacts that are not mana rocks because you are already using those mana rocks to tap for mana. So you're not gaining any more mana for that. So maybe an Urza deck or something like that that's playing lots of cheap artifacts to help enable this. But definitely you can draw a lot of cards with this. It's just a matter of is this better than the kind of cards that we've already had that do things like this, such as Stroke of Genius and Blue Sun Zenith. All right, so that was our set review for Kamigawa with a little bit of uh, Kamigawa Commander cards thrown in there. We focused on a lot of different formats. I want to thank Ivan and Roman for joining me today, and I hope next time that we uh, have more time, we can schedule some more time for them so they can stay on for the entire uh, podcast. But thank you very much for listening. I plan to keep doing these. Uh, I'm not sure what our next one will be on, prob uh, almost certainly the next set review. Anyways, thank you very much for joining me and have yourself a great time playing Magic.